Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Today we're going to talk about two books, uh, Work Song by Ivan Doig. And Love and Other Consolation Prizes by Jamie Ford. But I'm actually uh, kind of more interested in talking about these two writers in general, um, because I think they're probably the two most commercially successful writers to come out of Montana in a long time. I don't know, maybe McGuane is right up there too. What do you think? Uh, yeah, probably. It's hard for me to tell. I just know that both of them are, you know, routinely on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting, uh, it's interesting to explore what it is that about different writers that um, elevates them to that standard, you know. Right. And I never knew Ivan Doig, but I think you had some interactions with him and I think one thing also they have in common besides being best-selling writers is they're both really nice guys. Yeah. Well, yeah, my my Doig story is is a fun one. I I met him uh when my first novel was about to come out. My publisher said, uh, you know, you got to find some blurbs for this book and I didn't know any writers at all, so I was like, well, how do you do that? And they said, well, you just go to readings and introduce yourself and and uh which was hell for me i mean i don't like going up to people blind like that plus i was really intimidated <laughs> by writers but this was for uh in open spaces right yeah and but i was living in san francisco at the time and uh i noticed ivan doig was coming to the clean well-lighted place so I I actually called my mom and told her that I was going to go introduce myself to him because she's a huge fan of his. And she goes, oh, well, make sure you uh, tell him about working, that he worked for my cousin Gene. And I was <laughs> like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Small and world. It turned out he was a ranch hand on my mom's cousin's ranch up by White Sulphur Springs. And, There's a um, Montana story right there. I know, isn't it? <clears throat> so she says, oh, yeah, my cousin Gene always said uh, he was the worst ranch hand they ever had because he was always he always had his nose in a book. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I left that part out. I didn't mention that. But, yeah, I asked him to do a blurb, and he was super nice about it. Um, but it was weird because uh, when I, I had the publisher send him a a copy of the advanced reader copy and and then I never heard from him so I figured he was just too busy you know and the book came out and blah 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 and then and then when I was uh gonna have my second book published I thought well hell I'll try him again see what happens and it, so I wrote to him 
said, you know, I know you were busy last time, but if you would be willing to write a blurb for this one, I'd be so thrilled for that, you know. And uh, he wrote back immediately and said, I did write a blurb. And he had a, he sent me a photocopy of the, he typed, you know, it was back when they were, were still using typewriters. He oh, sent me man. a photocopy of the typed blurb that he had mailed to the publisher. And I don't know what happened with them, but they never used it. I guess they didn't, you know, it's probably some young kid in the PR department was like, who's Ivan Doig, you know? <laughs> nice. So anyway. Someone from Nontana. Yeah, exactly. So they used it for the I used it for the second book, but yeah. So he was just you know he was always very generous and kind that way, and I've heard that from a lot of people. Yeah, everyone I've ever talked to who knew him personally yeah. always mentions what a salt of the earth kind man he was, including Jamie. Didn't yes, Jamie exactly. And and Jamie's the same way. I mean, he's a super nice guy that's uh, so approachable and and easy to talk to. So today we are talking with Jamie Ford, the author of Love and Other Consolation Prizes, and also Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, and the Songs of Willow Frost. Welcome, Jamie. I'm here. I'm glad you mentioned Willow Frost. No, no one remembers that book, <laughs> and it's like it's like my favorite book of the three. Is it? it is for yeah. sure. Why? Uh, it's uh, it's a darker book. It's probably a little more personal. Um, it's, it was a bit, a bit of a stretch for that one because I'm writing from a female point of view and that's the one where I, I like it when I walk into an interview and people are like, you're a guy, you know, because mm, they thought I was right. a woman because of that book. You had a relationship with Doig, didn't you? I mean, not we were lovers. <laughs> people didn't, we didn't talk about it a lot. Yeah. And now that he's dead. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know if that has anything to do with their popularity. It's uh, comes through in their writing. Um, yeah, I, I wonder about that connection too, because there's you know plenty of best-selling New York Times novelists who are not nice people. Yeah, right. So I think it probably is mostly a function of you know the quality of their work for sure. Yeah, um, I think. You know, most writers start out not being famous and then, you know, develop that, um, but purely through readership, because I'm sure there are far more people who have never met these two than yeah, right. have met exactly. them. Yeah, it's it's one of the great mysteries. I think even publishers are baffled by what, you know, what turns out to be enormously successful. And I, I know Jamie was completely bowled over by how well his first book did. So how how uh, surprised were you by the enormous success of your first book, was it? Did that come? <laughs> I'm still surprised. Yeah, it was um, awesome. Yeah, I, I, having written two subsequent books... I've really had to grapple with like uh, 
just the reality that sometimes you can only you can only control the words on the page, your relationship to those words, and maybe your relationship to readers. And everything else is just out of your control. So if you're lucky, and I was very lucky, it's just a zeitgeist moment. And that book, if it came out 10 years earlier, 10 years later, it probably would have, you know, just come and gone. Why do you say that? Um, you know... Something about the story, you mean? Or? Yeah, and I, and I can't... It's like eating cake. I can't quite pick out the eggs or the flour or the sugar or the baking soda. Once it's baked together, it's doing something else. And when that book hit, I mean, it might have been that, you know, John Grisham didn't have a book coming out that day or something like that. Actually, John Grisham did have a book coming out the exact same day. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) But but there's other factors, you know, um, that can allow your book to be noticed in the marketplace. But also, I think... You know, we, our culture elected a uh, black president shortly after that. Mm. Um, There was a thought that books with Asian American characters would only appeal to an Asian American audience. And in 2006, there were still bookstores that took books written by African American authors and put them in an African American section instead Mm. of just letting it be fiction, Mm. which is weird. And so I think there was a moment where book clubs were reading books about other people's experiences, like The Kite Runner. Kite Runner. Immediately came to my mind. Yeah. And so it hit that moment where in the 60s and 70s, you know, no one, Caucasian audiences wouldn't read a book by Ha Jin. They would just think that's for Chinese people Mm. or academics Mm. or... um, and I, and I think now that there's this cross-pollinization of cultures, and so people are open to that. Um, and there, there was a, the Sansei, the third generation of Japanese Americans, um, were coming of age where they were really talking about what happened to their parents or grandparents. And so all of that kind of came together and... and uh, created, like I said, it's like a zeitgeist moment that Mm. you can't control. You know, neither one of them was afraid to write about dark topics. So like with Jamie's, with this book, Jamie's writing about a kid who gets sold off at the uh, World's Fair in Seattle um, an orphan who's an orphan who's auctioned kid, yeah. to the highest bidder, right? <laughs> so it starts off with this really dark premise, and, and I, it, you know, I think that it's it's worth pointing out that even that part of it is the least horrifying experience of that, you know, that young Chinese boy, right? You know, his life in China and the way he leaves his mother and his whole journey here is just horrific. Right. And then to, to come to America and then, you know, your first experience with America is being auctioned off to the highest bidder. Right. Plus, they don't even uh, tell him. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's dark, but like you said, it's never... Uh, demoralizingly dark so that you know you have to put the book aside and it's like some books are just unredeemingly dark and this yeah neither one of these is is you know that it's 
It's more yeah. of a, I don't know what the word is, but a kind of a sanguine approach to it all. It's like a thing that really happened. It's, I think it's also worth pointing out that this auctioning of the little boy actually occurred. things we both love about your writing is that you um you do go to dark places but you manage to do it in a way that's not um morbid and uh you know like oppressive like you, you don't get caught up in the darkness to the point where you want to throw the book across the room so we were or you lose all faith in humanity right yeah <laughs> it's not american psycho right exactly we're gonna like so do you think that's just sort of reflects your personality or is it a conscious thing? <laughs> uh, it's funny because Leisha, my wife, is here and uh, she would say, uh, I come from Seattle where it always rains yeah. and it's always raining in my mind. And <laughs> that's not too far from the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think, I think I'm drawn to, uh, I think most people are drawn to train wrecks and car crashes and hockey fights mm-hmm. and sort of the the less benevolent aspects of human nature um and i don't write to celebrate it but i I definitely write to kind of turn over the rocks and kind of look at the ugly things underneath Mm -hmm. i think those are those are compelling i guess what we're getting at though is you know take the case of the orphan who's auctioned off oh yeah yeah as horrible as that is you didn't dwell on it i guess is the thing like it's it's you just throw it out there and it's a thing and then he deals with it and I think a lot of other writers might just, you know, spiral around that total hideous. Yeah, that was, you know, I try, I try not to uh, write about things in the past and then convict them using the social norms of today. Right. Yeah, I that's a that's, really great. That's, that's yeah, because I think that's pretty unfair. I mean, you can you can look at really horrific things and say, yeah, that's horrible. Um, but you know, I think it's it's more useful to look at that and ask yourself why was that normal, right? In the context, uh, in the context, of that time. Yeah. yeah. So in, in 1909, they raffled off a child who was donated by the Washington uh, Receiving Home, and the way it was portrayed in the newspaper was like on Wednesday, you know, there's going to be uh, a display of 10,000 apples, and then on Thursday, they're raffling off a kid, and then on Friday, <laughs> the elephants <laughs> arrive. You know. The, the casualness by which it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, put out there. And, and contemporaneously, I found other newspaper articles by the same man, a man named L.J. Covington, who was the director of the receiving home. Um, There's other articles where people would just write into the newspaper, they write letters to the editor, and it would be a farm widow or something like that saying, I need a, you know, I need a healthy boy. Um, please send... The, the one I... Always remember is a woman wrote a letter to the editor and said, "I will take your ugliest child." <laughs> and and uh, Covington wrote back and said, "I have a twelve-year-old boy. He's not the ugliest, but I think he'll suit your needs." And uh, he's ugly enough. <laughs> so another thing that I. I like about both of these guys, these writers, and um, these two books are good examples of it, is they're not afraid of of, uh, addressing political topics. 
Um, but they don't hammer you over the head with it. They make it a very organic part of the whole story. noticed that you write a lot about but without drawing attention to it or beating people on over the head with it is the Chinese experience the Chinese immigrant yeah. experience and I, I I like the fact that you interweave that into the story but you don't make it uh, the entire focal point so how much of a conscious effort is that yeah I mean it's a, it's a huge conscious effort and it's it's more of a an indulgence for me uh, my dad passed away about 15, 16 years ago. Um, and my dad spoke, you know, he was Cantonese, spoke Cantonese fluently. Um, and when he died, I really felt cut off from that side of my family. Ooh. And so I, I, I wrote, uh, you know, Asian American stuff just as an exploration of my own identity, um, you know, for, for therapeutic reasons, if nothing else. And then later, like when Hotel, my first book, Hotel in the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, was turned into a play. I, and they had a cast of 26, and the majority of which were Asian Americans. And I realized it was the first time a lot of these people had ever been on stage in an Asian story. Mm. They were always like the token Asian mm. in some other story. And then I realized there's, you know, there's an underrepresentation in the arts uh, compared to, you know, the percentage of the population, which means there's there's an underrepresentation of opportunity, and so then I felt like I, I should continue writing these stories because I enjoy it, but there's some utility in it as well. Yeah, um, which is tough because I could write about my mom's side of the family, who are equally interesting. My mom was from the Ozarks uh, in Arkansas, mm. a town of about 250 people, and they were fruit pickers back when white people picked fruit, and they went to California, like in the Grapes of Wrath, and that you know, era of migration. Um, and yeah, I read the book, Hillbilly Elegy. I read about half of it and it just, it did nothing for me because it was so close to my mom's family. I'm mm. like, yeah, I, that's my uncle beat up someone in the driveway too. Like, yeah, that's, that's normal. Um, and so she, you know, that sort of winter's bone kind of mm. hard scrabble, yeah. poor, uh, you know, sub poverty, uh, white folk, I think there's interesting stories to tell there as well. But I think there's plenty of people to tell those stories, and yeah. there's fewer people to tell Asian American stories. So. Right. How did your parents meet? Yeah, that's great. I, I love it because my mom's, we found out my mom's ancestor was uh, someone named uh, Constance Hopkins, who was on the Mayflower. So my mom's mm -hmm. ancestors came over on the Mayflower, and my dad's ancestors came over in the 1860s to work on the railroad. Wow. And so, like... East meets West. Yeah. Um, they met in California, and uh, and they got married in '66 when it was pretty much illegal to get married in my mom's home state of Arkansas because they you know they changed the law in '67. Um, get married, you mean as a mixed race mis couple. mixed race yeah. couple? Yeah, miscegenation laws. Uh, okay. you know, there were 13 Southern states plus Maine that where it was illegal until before 1967. Loving. Yeah, before the Loving mm. decision. And even in places where it was kind of nebulous, in the South or quasi South, um, it's kind of like that woman. Cause she's in Kentucky. That was it. Kentucky that refused to uh, issue a, a marriage license to right. a couple. Oh yeah. There were right. people in states where it was legal, where they would just they just would drag their feet or not issue mm -hmm. them a marriage license. And 
Arkansas was one of those places for sure. Hmm. But it's funny you bring up the the representation of Chinese Americans because um, I was thinking about the fact that most of the um, writing that's been done about that has been by women. Like yeah, Amy Tan and Gish Chen and. Uh, um, so, yeah, you you got a big load on your shoulders there. <laughs> There's people like Ha Jin. Yes. But, you know, he really represents that generation that came here after the, the revolution. And so he writes yeah. um, about that. And I'm my family's been here for four generations. So, I mean, my, my Chinese family's been here 20 years longer than Donald Trump's family. Interesting. Which I always, you know, I'm kind of, kind of strangely proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but For also, uh, not to bore listeners with uh, just history, but Chinese people couldn't become citizens until 1943 because of the Chinese Exclusion Act until that was overturned. But you could be born here. Mm. Thanks to the 14th Amendment, woohoo, um, my family became citizens because my grandfather was born here. But... There are people in Trump's administration, and Trump himself has said, maybe we should take the citizenship clause out of the 14th Amendment so people oh, wow. born here don't automatically become citizens. They're very focused. I mean, they're both really good storytellers, and I always like to think that uh, the two main elements of good books are craft and story, and these two have the story part nailed down you know um absolutely yep the, you know the arc jamie i think is a master of the narrative absolutely arc. yeah and yeah. i haven't read enough of doig to to judge whether that's a consistent well you know, when he was at his, his best strengths. he was a good storyteller he had a few clunkers along the way and i thought it was actually pretty interesting that uh who was it jonathan yardley he hated he this really by doig <laughs> Yeah, he really did not like it. And I think it's surprising because I I thought it was a real... You know, I've tried other novels by Doig and couldn't get into them, but uh, this one, you know, maybe because it was about Butte, just grabbed me from the beginning, and I thought it was a really well-crafted, well-told story. Um, and I think it captured Butte pretty well. Yeah. Um, especially the character of the librarian... Yeah, who, who was, was based, based on, on uh, Granville Stewart. Right. Which brings us you know, to another topic. Uh, what's a Montana writer theme that we visit? Right. In the case of Doig, you have a writer who's from Montana, but moved to Seattle, spent most of his life there, and wrote about his home state. And that's true of other Mon- you know, so-called Montana writers like Norman McLean. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, you know, spent 50 years in Chicago. So mm-hmm. they wrote about Montana, but they lived elsewhere. So that kind of complicates what is a Montana writer. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have Jamie Ford, who, you know, is a quintessential Montanan because he lives in Great Falls. <laughs> but he writes grew up about in Seattle. Seattle. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, I love the con- the connection there, the alternate realities. But I, I liked what Jamie said about that, that... um you write about the place you, places you long for. Right, right. I thought that was pretty uh, astute. Curious about Great Falls, Montana. <laughs> okay. So, and, yeah. You know, 
when we met before, I, I've asked you. Why Great Falls? Why, well, why Great Falls and like what influence does living here have on your work? Howie, that's a great question. Uh, um, I, I grew up really poor. Um, and someone asked me like, what's poor for you? I'm like, okay, it's not, um, you know, living in a cardboard box poor, or it's not reservation poor, um, not living in the Tijuana slums poor. But I, when I graduated from high school, I was living in a single white trailer with my alcoholic mother and her alcoholic boyfriend. So that's, mm. that's my version of poor. Um, and Great Falls is kind of a poor town. Mm-hmm. So I'm, it's, and because of that, it's very unpretentious. And I feel more comfortable in a blue collar environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in Seattle when First Avenue was all porn theaters and pawn shops. And now it's all gentrified. And mm. so... I, I'm just very, I still consider myself a very blue collar kid, so I'm super comfortable in that environment um, because you just see people as they really are. And that's not to say they're poor, so they're illiterate or not cultured. They're just, they just don't put on airs the way mm. they might do in uh, Brooklyn or, uh, you know, West LA or something like that. So I, I like it here for those reasons. Um, I like it here because it's a great place to raise kids. Mm-hmm. I like Great Falls geographically because it's really close to the Rocky Mountain Front and the Bob Marshall and the, you know, the Glacier. And, um, you know, friends can text me at three and say, do you want to get the kayaks wet? I'm like, yeah, and we can put mm-hmm. the kayaks in at 530 nice. and float the river for a few hours. And um, all the things that I like to do when I'm not riding or traveling are are easily accessible from here <laughs> find some other way to pay the bill the things that writers do the things that writers do yeah yeah hang out at the track and uh bet on the horses so this is kind of a entree into a larger question that russell and i frequently come up against and oh, that is okay. what is a montana Ooh. writer <laughs> and you're an interesting case because you're a very Montana guy. You live in Great Falls, Montana. You yeah. can't get any more Montana I've, than that. I've been but, here almost 20 years, so I've been here a while. Mm-hmm. It, but it doesn't... There's no Montana in your books, I guess. Oh, no. Yeah. But there must be an influence. Um, the blue-collar thing. For probably, yeah. I mean, my favorite places in Montana are Butte and Great Falls. Mm. Um, I, I like Missoula. I, I like Bozeman. Butte. I like Livingston and... Billings hey, is all right. Helena? What's that? What about Helena? <laughs> Helena, Helena, I take for granted because I'm there all the time. You know, it's uh, and it's honestly, I'm not. Helena isn't that interesting to me. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll cut this part out. Yeah, right I know. For me, I, it would be like I would go to the burger joint in East Helena. You know, that's more my speed. <laughs> no, Butte is my favorite. I mean, I've always ah, been pretty Butte. clear about that. Butte is amazing. Love Butte. Yeah. Um, in all its rough and tumble. And Great Falls is kind of like Butte without the glitz. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Great Falls really was that smelter town connected to Butte. And now it's kind of a big farm town. I hate to say it, but it's just, it's lost its character a bit. Butte, you mean? No, Great Falls. You know, that's really interesting that you'd bring that up because I grew up in Helena and uh, Great Falls was always this kind of exotic place for us <laughs> where we'd go to the mall. We'd go exotic. Christmas shopping there. Yeah. And it always seemed like the big city. And then when I moved back to Montana after being away for almost 20 years, one of the things that I really liked about Great Falls is that unlike Missoula and unlike Helena and Bozeman, 
it was exactly the same. Mm. Yeah, it's a time. It was when I left, and people called it when I first moved here the land that time forgot. Mm. It is. But I agree with you. In the last five years, it really has changed, and I don't know if that's the new Walmart out there or what happened. It's uh, it's good and bad. I mean, there's some great restaurants downtown now. Yeah, I mean, we do have, but it is, it is, it is, it is a time warp. I mean, there are. Night Ranger is played on the radio in a non-ironic way. So one of the reasons that uh, Jamie's book doesn't get bogged down in politics and the, the whole issue of the Chinese American experience is because it's really the focal point is really a love story. Um, the young boy falls in love with two different women and the plot is really revolves around which one he ends up with because we know that he ends up marrying one of them, but we're not sure. We're not sure which one it is. Right. And also the complicated relationship between that little boy grown up with his children um, in Seattle, right around the time of the, what was that? The World's Fair, the yeah, and the Space Needle was built. Yeah, I think he he's really good at focusing on the personal experience of the characters rather than you know right making yeah. broad political statements. Although I think they're there, right um, in a subtle way. I, I yeah. think you're right. And Doig does a lot of the same thing. I mean. A huge part of the plot of Work Song is that, that there's a another workers' revolt, uh, labor issues are going on in Butte once again. What time? What uh, time frame is this book? I forget. Um, well, if Granville Stewart is the librarian, that has to be pretty early. So yeah. that's early twentieth um, century, probably or nineteen nineteen. I think it's. Okay. It's set, uh, because doesn't it climax with the Anaconda Road Massacre? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, the, Which, the once again, um, you know, labor issues are sort of swirling around. Um, but he, he focuses more on the relationships between the characters. Um, yeah, that's true. It's uh, It's not quite the indictment of American capitalism that, say grapes of wrath is right plus he sort of he has a way of sort of removing um the real meat of that issue by having the main character not be a minor but but a a school teacher a school teacher yeah so and this character figures in other books as well right right he does yeah uh so another thing that's kind of fascinating about both of these writers and probably adds to their appeal. They, they tend to walk the fine line between sentiment and real emotion. Uh, sometimes maybe tipping a little far into the sentimental side, but, um, I think that that is one thing that probably appeals to a lot of readers. I think, I think that's probably a fair assessment and I don't think either one of them would probably quarrel too much with that. Yeah. I mean, Jamie's a diehard romantic. You can just tell all of his books are revolve around some very love story. You know, love struck 
character. Well, if you think though about it, it's true that you know the vast majority of of literary and really probably most artworks are about love, yeah, romantic right. love, love and death. And I remember one time when uh, I was going through a difficult time. I don't know, having just broken up with a girl or something, and was complaining to my roommate in college about it and he just looked at me and he said well people have been writing novels about it for five thousand years <laughs> <laughs> which is both a statement on the nature of love but also it's a literary critical comment yeah right nothing new man um but like you said if the love story is the spine of these books you know the the flesh that's on them is the the rest of the story you know the mind yeah. struggles imbued right the the house of prostitution and early seattle history yeah and you know even late 20th century history the world's fair in seattle and you know the what what the world looks like Maybe what Seattle looks like from the eyes of an Asian immigrant as mm, opposed to, right. you know, a white. And I, I wonder, I have to think that a lot of Jamie's appeal um, probably comes from the fact that he's, he, uh, his, his stories are more universal. Like it's not a, I mean, even though it's about a Chinese kid, it's, um, it's more of a universal story. It's not a the kind of book that's going to get pigeonholed into a genre where, whereas, you know, Doig would have been considered regional. Um, they, they, I think they tend to, uh, give Western writers one or two spokesmen. And he was one of the ones that was fortunate enough to, you know, be endowed with that. No, I think you're right. Like Annie Pruel. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, they maybe because they were so popular, yeah. Um, that you know, when it comes time to talk about Western literature, you can point to those guys, and even readers in Illinois know who they are. Yeah, even though Annie Prue only lived here for a while, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. <clears throat> Reminds me of uh, I submitted a novel to a publisher once, and uh, they wrote back and said. Oh, the writing's good. We really like the story. But we already represent, uh, we already published Larry Watson. <laughs> so they had their token Montanan. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And I told that story at a panel in Missoula one time, and, and uh, this guy came up to me afterward and he goes, Hey, I'm Larry Watson. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Somebody just gave me Montana 1948 to read. Oh, really? It's a good book. And he, again, super nice guy. I really like Larry a lot. So, yeah, I guess it's fair to say we like both of these books. Uh, generally, we like both of these writers. Um, yeah, I, th I think these are both, you know, really solid novels. Uh, great uh, examples of books that put Montana on the map rather than maybe the other way around that 
um, you know, they're, somebody gets interested in Montana and then ferrets out the obscure stuff. Yeah, right. Um, Unfortunately, because some of that is so good, you know. It's, it's one of the things that's kind of um, annoying about the fact that people tend to um, gravitate toward one or two writers from a region because there's so many good ones in Montana. And, you know, I don't begrudge these guys their success at all, but um, I just think to limit yourself to these two is... Uh, you're missing out right i think i think it's a pretty common but uh yeah universal fallacy that because something is popular it means it's the best that you know that genre has to offer yeah and i'm glad that you know the next time around we're going to look at two pretty obscure books aren't we yeah gothic yes uh two writers from montana who deserve a lot more acclaim than they've than they've gotten I certainly agree with that. And so Dirk Van Sickle's Montana Gothic is one of them. And Matt Pavlich's Survivor Said, a collection of short fiction. Which is just amazing, yeah. So please join us next time. For Breakfast in Montana. Thank you. Breakfast in Montana is produced and edited by Russell Rowland. The music is written and performed by Aaron Parrott. Thanks again. Got a lifetime filled with whiskey And the short and the most of the ropes Till she came